Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. on PA Books, Chris Bagley, author of The Horse at Gettysburg. Our guest today is Chris Bagley, and he is the author of this book, The Horse at Gettysburg, Prepared for the Day of Battle. Uh, Chris, do you remember the first time you went to Gettysburg? Yes, actually, I do. Um, I was 10 years old, and our family was taking a trip from Ohio over to Philadelphia and then into New Jersey. Well, Gettysburg just happened to be on the way, so we stopped at Gettysburg. Um, my mom and my brother could have cared less, but my dad and I took the double-decker bus tour, and we toured all the battlefield. I only remember Little Round Top, Devil's Den, and where Pickett's Charge took place. I was just blown away by the immense size of the battlefield. And I didn't really go back to Gettysburg until after the movie Gettysburg, directed by Ron Maxwell with that nice all-star cast. I went back with my dad, and it was the same thing. I was just blown away by the immense size and scope of this battlefield. Well, it got me going back more and more. So my mancation wasn't golf. It was going to Gettysburg. And then eventually I had to drag my wife there, too and she really loved that. Well, you are a licensed battlefield guide. I am. What does that mean? Well, in 18, uh, well, let's put it this way. Initially, people came to Gettysburg almost right after the battle, and a lot of these were family members to see what had happened to their loved ones if they were among the wounded. Some people were just curiosity seekers, so they needed people to show them around, and as it evolved, more and more people, and many of them were veterans of the battle, would take people out and show them the different areas of the field. After the 50th reunion, though, some of the people that were calling themselves guides proved one thing. They had no idea what they were talking about, especially if you're addressing to a veteran. Oh, yes, that regiment fought right here. It's like, no, I was in that regiment, and we weren't anywhere near it. So they petitioned the War Department, they petitioned the government to do something about it and step in. And as a consequence, they made a rule that all future guides would have to be licensed by the War Department. And that started in 1915. And since then, there's been more people that have gone into outer space and walked on the moon than have been Gettysburg guides. It's that hard to become one. What is the test like? <laughs> well, it's changed over the years. The first time I took it, it was just multiple choice, true and false, fill in the blank, matching. Uh, there are certain areas where they will post a picture of a monument. Now, they erase all of the inscriptions on it, and you have to tell them which regiment or, you know, where it belonged. Um, over the years, though, that has changed. Now the test is uh, divided into two parts, a morning and an afternoon. It goes from 8.30 to 4.30. The morning section is about 250 to 300 fill-in-the-blank questions. You either know it or you don't. Uh, after lunch, you come back, and then there's 16 essays, at least on the last one and the one I took. That's what it was. You get to pick eight of them 
and you have about three hours and you can only use one side of one piece of paper to write your answer. So they're looking for accuracy, simplicity, and brevity because that's what guides do. We take the general public out to the battlefield and many of these people have never been to Gettysburg before. They have absolutely no idea how big this field is. So you have to take a stack of books this tall and condense it into a pamphlet so they can understand what happened. And usually, if you do your job right, at the end of the tour, they're like, we're so happy we got you to come out and do this because now it all makes sense. And when we go back and look at other parts of the field later on, we'll be able to put two and two together. So that's what guides do. Did you say the test was a certain thing the first time you took it? Mm-hmm. You flake, flunked it the first time? Well, there wasn't, well, I guess you could say I'd flunked it. Um, at one point, they only took a certain percentage, like I think it was like a 94, 95% or better to pass. I got an 84%, which academically is still a reasonably, you know, <laughs> good grade, but it wasn't enough. The second time I took it, the test was so hard that I, I'm not sure exactly what the highest grade was, but I don't know that it even broke 90. So the last one was almost like a bell curve, I think. I'm not sure. But they took the top 42 people, and I finished 38, so I made the cut. How do you study for something like that? <clears throat> it's all self-study. Um, you have to buy lots of books, and you have to do lots of reading. And the other thing that you have to do, and it's not an option, you have to visit the field on a regular basis. Now, with the advent of the Internet and everything like that, you can go to um, different websites and get information on the monuments and read what the inscriptions are. So if you can't actually get to the field, if you live far away, you have that option, you know, where you can do some studying from home and PCN. PCN puts on a lot of talks with guides, rangers. Wouldn't be surprised how much you can learn by watching a few videos with battlefield guides or park rangers, and you can actually see the terrain as they're giving the talks. So I, when I first wanted to become a guide, I notified Wayne Motts, who is now, he's a guide at Gettysburg. He's been there for a, a while and he's now the CEO of the Gettysburg Foundation. And Wayne says, all right, you wanna be a guide, meet me out for breakfast and we'll go over what you need to know. Well, the first thing he asked me, he goes, what two states were admitted during the Missouri Compromise? All right, well, I know one, you just told me. <laughs> I had no idea and I'm like, no, 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 I, I wanna be a guide. He's like, all right, he goes, what is the emblem for infantry? And I thought, well, it's crossed rifles, that's what it is today. He goes, no, it's a bugle. And I'm thinking, I came in here thinking, I got this and I already flunked the first two questions. So I knew I had a lot of work to do. Wayne took me out, said, hold out your arms. We went to a bookstore, he goes, do you have this book? No, he just started stacking the ones I needed. And he goes, you have to read these. So I made myself a study guide. And once the study guide was finished, I would read it every night. Some, you know, as much as I could. And I was working in Carlisle. I was doing a travel nursing assignment. So I was able to visit the field on weekends, which helped. Um, but the first time I took the test, like I said, I, I got like an 84%, which wasn't enough to go to the next phase. And the next phase is basically you have to go now in front of an interview panel. So you would have eight veteran guides and a park ranger who are going to ask you questions and see how well you can articulate, how well you can speak. You have six, or six questions, 
and you have 30 minutes to answer them. So if you get to number four and the bell goes off, <laughs> you're done. <laughs> uh, by the same token, if you answer all six in 10 minutes, you're probably not going to do well either. So out of the 42 that passed the test, we are now down to about 22. That's how many they weeded out with just the interview. Then you go to what's called orientation, or it's slang term of charm school. So they teach you how to put together a tour, but you have to put the tour together. And then as a final obstacle, you have to take a licensed battlefield guide and the supervisory ranger for guides out on a two-hour tour. And you have to treat them as if they know nothing, which is very nerve-wracking because they are sitting there with a legal pad writing down everything that comes out of your mouth. Very rarely do they crack a smile, and they're also grading you on your driving skills. So if you blow through a stop sign or a red light, it's an automatic failure. You might as well turn around and go back. Your, your tour could have been perfect. If you blow a stop sign on the Emmitsburg <laughs> Road or, you know, a red light, you're done. Now, today, but, uh, to come here to PCN mm -hmm. to do this interview, you came up from Gettysburg. I did. When you visit Gettysburg these days, for as much as you have been through with it, what, what do you look for? What do you do? Um, I'm not sure. But what is there, what more do you have to learn by going to Gettysburg? Oh, I, I see what you say. Uh, there's always something to learn. I mean, there was a, near 165,000 participants in this battle, and that's not including the lives of the townspeople of surrounding areas. There's always something you can learn, and it's very rare that I come up here that, you know, you talk to your friends and whatnot, other guides, and, you know, they're telling a story, and you're like, wow, I never heard that before. And then, well, I don't just believe people. I go, and then I have to look it up. It's just one of my quirks. So you do that, and it just adds to that knowledge base. So when you do take people out, we like to um, take the people and kind of customize the tour for them. So if you were, say, from my home state, Ohio, we would want to talk about you know, Ohio's contribution during the Battle of Gettysburg, maybe some of the interesting stories that involve people from the state of Ohio. And that can be done for just about anywhere. I've taken uh, people from West Point out, highest rank was a colonel, and you know, signal corps, so where are you gonna go? You're gonna go right to the top of Little Round Top and show them that plaque right there. And they love it. And it's a lot of fun because you get to meet people from all over the United States and also the world. Do you have a favorite spot there? Um, yeah, actually I do. Um, I like where Maverick is boarded. It's very quiet and peaceful and people think that Artillery Ridge is not part of the battlefield, but it was. It's no, just who, privately owned. Who's Maverick and what is Artillery Ridge? Well, Artillery Ridge is a campground, but it's also where uh, Maverick is boarded and Maverick is my horse. If you hold up that book, you're going to see one of the most beautiful horses on the front cover, and that is Maverick. So I enjoy going out there because I can visit with him. It's still the battlefield. That's where they kept the artillery reserve. That's why they call it Artillery Ridge. And I'm able to visit with him, and if I want to sit down and read, it's usually very quiet. Now, your book is The Horse at Gettysburg, so we talked about your Gettysburg interest. What's mm -hmm. your interest in horses? I had an interest in horses since I was a young kid, but I was a city boy. So, you know, we didn't really get to go. My first horse I rode was a quarter horse. 
and I was about, I don't know, three years old. My dad put a quarter in it. It was in front of Kmart, <laughs> and it went for about a minute and a half, and I, I loved it. And as I got older, the first thing you go to the county fair or you know a festival, something like that, you're going to see horses. And I always wanted to go ride the pony rides, not not the mer or the merry-go-round, the carousel. I wanted the real thing. So. I always had a fascination with horses because they, they basically they trigger your imagination. You can think of the Wild West, the Civil War, all the way up into even World War II, Knights, King Arthur, uh, even some of the quotes that I have in the book spark the imagination. And you know what? You see Clint Eastwood or John Wayne hopping off a horse. I mean, it's, they're awesome animals. How many horses were at Gettysburg? The numbers aren't exactly... Um, to the horse, but we can estimate that it was probably between 60 and 80,000. Now, were all of those horses used for combat? That would probably be a better choice of words, but no, they weren't. You had horses that did mundane, or what we consider mundane duties, pulling wagons, but they're full of supplies. That helps to turn the gears of war. You have uh, horses pulling ambulances to get the wounded men to a hospital where they can receive medical care. You have mules that are also pulling supply wagons. And then, of course, you have the military component. So you have horses that are strictly artillery. You have horses that are strictly cavalry. You have horses that are private mounts and for couriers and messengers that are going to be galloping back and forth all over the battlefield. Different breeds of horses for different functions? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Sometimes when you read accounts, it may say the breed of horse. It may just give the color of the horse. So they always say that Richard Garnett's horse was red-eye. This is the horse he was riding during Pickett's Charge, the one that he was shot from. And they think the horse survived. They're not 100% sure. But either way, he was described as a bay thoroughbred. So thoroughbreds, the breed, it's what you see in the Kentucky Derby. Those are thoroughbreds. Very fast horse, kind of high strung, but a bay, if you take a look at the front of the cover, that is a bay. A bay horse is a brown horse, a darker brown, maybe a lighter brown, but they normally will have the muzzle, front of their face, the muzzle, will be black, their mane, their tail, black, and then the lower legs usually have black socks or the lower leg coloration that would be a bay horse. So if you see a bay thoroughbred, at least now you can kind of paint a picture in your mind as to what that would look like. So all those horses had to be fed and watered? Oh, absolutely. And that was a logistical nightmare because armies run on their stomach and horses do too. And matter of fact, if you put a horse out into a pasture, they'll graze a better part of two thirds of the day. So. So how did, they, how did they haul all that food and all that water? You need more horses and wagons to carry even you know, the, the hay that they need. Uh, you also had to provide some source of other calories other than hay, such as uh, oats, barley, corn. Uh, oats was usually the best one because it was high in protein for the horses. And then the hay and water is just to aid in the digestion for the horse. It was very important. But the problem is, is when these armies moved, they moved many times water source to water source. They even had several times throughout the day what they called a water call. So you would either take the horses to the water 
or you would send some men out with wagons and bring the water to the horses. If the horses don't get their water, it's kind of like a human. They will dehydrate, and if it goes far enough, they can develop digestion problems, and even, you know, like a human, they can die. So moving from water source to water source was very important, and they preferred something like a lake, or I'm sorry, not a lake, but a stream, river, something with running water, not something like a stagnant pond. So, and same reason we wouldn't want to drink out of it. Where'd they get the horses in the first place? I mean, was there some recruiting center? Or? Well, you know, in a way they, um, <clears throat> at the beginning of the war, they weren't real picky. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it's kind of like the uh, shoddy used car salesman, you know, <laughs> you're hoping you don't see this or that, but they would sell the government horses and they were finding by 1863 that the quality, at least in the federal army of uh, horse flesh was wanting, meaning these horses that they were getting weren't all that they were supposed to be. So they developed a series of depots, and these depots were to uh, receive horses, and they would have trained horsemen, men that have been around horses their entire lives, and they would look at these horses and assess them to make sure that they were healthy, and that they were the right age, that they were going to be able to do certain things that they were gonna be required to do in the field, like maybe go up to a trot or you know, even a lope and you know, make sure that their hearing and their eyesight is good. Um, the Confederates on the initial portion of the war didn't really have too much of a problem because many of the uh, Confederate cavalry had to provide their own horses. A lot of people don't know that. And the Confederate government basically would appraise your horse. And they would say, okay, your horse is worth $150. If that horse is killed, during a battle, then you were supposed, supposed to receive compensation and you would be furloughed home to get another horse. You say in your book, Confederate horsemen were lucky to receive full payment, if anything at all. Then after the loss mm -hmm. of his horse, the trooper had the responsibility at that point to obtain another horse. Mm -hmm. So they, they had to get their own and the army didn't supply them. Right, but the army did provide them with food forage and an extra 40 cents a day. It's kind of like if you uh, use your car for Uber, they'll you know, pay you mileage. So they gave them you know, 40 cents a day extra uh, for the use of their horse. But again, by the war's end, you're gonna see the inflation rate of Confederate currency just go through the roof. When Lee purchased Traveler, his favorite horse, I believe the sum he paid was $225. And by the end, of the war, that same horse, Traveler, was appraised for $4,600. So you can see how the inflation affected the cost. And the average cost during the uh, Civil War for a horse, we'll say it's right around 170, 175. Some horses were more expensive than others, and um, they also had to meet certain criteria to be in different branches of the service. How did they train horses so to, to get used to cannons going off and guns going off? One of the things that they do today, um, and they still have competitions throughout the United States where they have people on horses and they fire pistols. Uh, so you obviously have to desensitize the horse. But there's other things out there other than cannons and rifle fire that will scare a horse. How about a plastic bag from Walmart floating across the street? I mean, it's going to kill the horse. The horse knows this. It's the, you know, giant horse-eating trash bag. And they will freak out. But if you desensitize them to it, 
then they become more accustomed and they're like, oh, you know, he's on my back, that's nothing to worry about, and they keep moving on. So they use an, a method of retreat and approach. So you bring something scary into the horse's view, it will startle, and then you withdraw it. Allow the horse to inspect it then and say, okay, this is not going to bother me. And the more you do this in a repetitive process, the horse learns to not worry about it. Now, so far as a cannon or a rifle or something along that lines, what they would do is they would have experienced horsemen further away and they would begin firing their carbines and pistols. And there's a group of what they called green horses or untrained horses that were further away. And that's, you know, they, as they got used to it, they started to close the gap and bring them together. And then eventually, you're on top of this animal, firing your pistol or swinging your saber. Uh, the other things that they would have, you know, people don't even give it a second thought. A bugle makes a lot of noise. Drums, flags, pennants, all those things they had to desensitize these animals to. But the big challenge that they had, especially in the Union Army, was time. Today, you can take you know, your horse out three or four days out of the week for an hour, hour and a half, work with them, train them. But now, in 1861, there's a war going on. There is not the amount of time to do this, so it had to be done as quickly as possible to achieve the best results possible, which I put in there a couple interesting quotes about you know fellows that thought they were really good horsemen and when they got on a very spirited animal, they found out right away that they weren't quite as good as they thought. Now you you uh, talk about uh, you talked about General Lee's horse, but mm -hmm. also General Meade's horse, uh, yeah. Old Baldy. It was wounded six times in mm -hmm. battle. How would a horse react to getting shot without, I mean, like not a life-threatening injury and not just completely freak out? Well, the last time he was wounded was at Gettysburg on July 2nd. Um, I believe the bullet, if I'm not mistaken, passed through Meade's pant leg, or his pants, hit the horse somewhere in the abdomen area. And he said that no amount of spurring could get this horse to move. So Lee, or I'm sorry, Meade had to get off a of baldy, they took him to the rear, and then he had to procure another horse. Now, some horses could be wounded multiple times. They're very dense, muscular horse, or animals. So, um, it, you know, it depends like a person. You see some of these guys get shot and they survive, and then, you know, if the bullet or the round was closer, well, they may not, and I think it's, you know, a lot of that's going to be dependent, you know. Plus, the horse has accoutrements, like Hancock was wounded, you know, part of the bullet caught the saddle and drove the nail into his groin. So you have a lot of things that the horse may have on it might inadvertently protect it. So the horse well. wouldn't necessarily bolt if he felt a No, not necessarily. Wound. Not necessarily. I'm sure he's not going to be real happy, but um, like I said, Meade was spurring him, trying to get him to go, and he wouldn't even move. So, you know, he was, you know, probably hurt pretty badly, but he ended up recovering. He sent him back um, for rehab, and, you know, he ended up outliving Meade by, I believe it was 10 years. One of the things you say in your book is that at the start of the war, the Confederates had the advantage on horseback because mm -hmm. they were just more used to it. Mm -hmm. Well, the um, South was more rural, and the North was more urban. 
And, you know, don't get me wrong, there's are areas in the north that was, you know, farmland pasture, and you had people that were accustomed to riding and utilizing horses in their daily lives. But you go to a big city, I mean, some of these people didn't do or, or have to, you know, move very far to go from, say, home to work. They might have lived in the same building that they worked in. And if anything, maybe they used a horse to uh, pull a cart, or maybe they hopped in a buggy to go, you know, a little further down the road, but it was nothing that they had to do to take care of it. So you got a lot of shopkeepers, cobblers, you know, manual labor that, you know, don't have any horse riding experience. Now they join the cavalry and all that's about to change. So now you have to teach the horse, but you also have to teach the person that's gonna be riding them too. And that can be a big challenge and they did find out Many of the men grumbled and complained they couldn't understand why they were doing all of these different exercises and drills. But once they got out in the field and they were campaigning and even at Gettysburg, then the light bulb came on. That's why you want to know how to mount your animal from left or right side or, you know, how to swing the saber properly, fire your carbine, those kind of things. They have to know how to uh, jump a ditch or a fence. So they had to practice that while they were being trained as well. Did they have to train them for things like walking on rocks and walking through mm -hmm. mud? During the Gettysburg campaign, um, most people, you know, like I said, when you see Gettysburg, the field, it, some of it's just grassy, you know, nice rolling ridges. And the further south you go, you see these huge, immense boulders on Little Round Top, Devil's Den, all around the base of Culp's Hill. Uh, and these are not pleasant areas to be on a horse because the horse has to be able to see. So it puts the rider and the horse in danger. And the other thing is even when they were en route to Gettysburg and when they also retreated from Gettysburg, there were torrential rains so it makes it more difficult for the horses to walk. Uh, that pulls the shoes off. I mean, you already got the, the wagon or, you know, cannon and limber that sunk it to its axle in mud. And now you got these poor animals trying to pull that. Their shoes are coming off. So it's just, it's not a pleasant experience. So the drier it is to a degree, the better off it is for riding. Well, the days of the Gettysburg battle were, were kind of hot. Oh, so a little how, bit. How do the horses handle the heat? Uh, well, horses will sweat just like people do, um, and they need water, and they need time to decompress just like people do. Now, horses normally don't sleep, you know, like we do. They only need about three, maybe four hours of sleep a day, and they can sleep standing up. But when they get out in that hot weather, they do start to sweat, and they will also, you know, that increases their fluid intake. It's just like when we go out and we're working in the hot sun, you get even more thirsty, you're sweating, and you have to drink more water. Otherwise, you're going to get dehydrated and get, you know, sunstroke or some other, you know, uh, problems. So they had to make sure that the horses were well watered. And unfortunately, Gettysburg, when you look at the surrounding areas, all these farms, I mean, most of their wells were bled dry. You're talking about for eight, you know, 60 to 80,000 horses, you're talking about almost 80,000, I'm sorry, 800,000 gallons of water per day. That's astronomical. You know, even if you had modern means, that's a lot of water. So they had to water these horses to keep them so they were able to function properly. And unfortunately, I'm sure many of them did die 
from dehydration and what we would say exposure. And when the Confederate Army was at Gettysburg, they were pretty far from home. Mm -hmm. So when they would lose horses, how did they replace them? Uh, well, they had this little thing where they would requisition as they pass through towns. Um, if they, and now you got to understand that you're not talking necessarily getting a, you know, choice thoroughbred. You're talking about going to a farm where they may have some draft horses, which are bigger horses. They'll work. They're great for pulling cannon and whatnot. But you know, they may not be the speediest animal when it comes to you know running a gallop or something like that. So they requisitioned from the local populace in Pennsylvania. Uh, for animals. So they would either pave with them in Confederate money or they would issue them a receipt, leave forbade, you know, that they stole anything, although that was widely and uh, liberally interpreted. But if anything, they would give you a receipt because they thought, well, we're going to win the war. When it's over, you can go to Richmond and we'll pay you for your horse. Um, and that's how the Confederates, that's, you know, one of the reasons they invade the North. It's not been, it's not been touched. They need food. They need supplies. You know, and you also need horses. But they wouldn't have had the time to train the horses to get no, used to cannon No, not necessarily, fire. but you could send them back. And if you needed a few to replace, you know, just pulling a cart or a wagon or something, you would have that available. But I believe that, you know, once you get these animals, they're not trained, you're right. So you're going to send them back where they can be, you know, doled out, I guess you would say. One of the things I learned in your book, you say, considering horses are prey animals, their senses are more acute, their view on a moonlight night would be on a par with humans during the day. Mm -hmm. So they're very handy to go on night. Yeah, you know, and I, when I was doing the research for this, I did not realize that. And I thought, well, I got to get a, you know, I verified it with a couple sources saying that, yes, you know, on a full moonlit night, these horses can see quite well. And um, they're, all of their senses are that way. And it's because they are prey. That's their survival mode. So, you know, they can see, see predators coming. Their hearing is very acute and horses have this peculiar ability where they can move their ears independently of each other. So one may be pointing forward, one may be going to the side. Uh, it's actually kind of cute to watch, but that allows them to hear something like maybe a stick snap in the distance it might be a predator. And then, of course, you have the sense of smell. So, you know, if a horse is, you're on a horse and you're riding a trail or something, and that horse just all of a sudden comes to a dead stop and he's looking at seemingly nothing, look at his ears. If they're pointing that way, I found out. And I'm like, well, why, 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 you, you know, why you stopped here? And Terry, the, the other guide that I work with sometimes, she goes, he sees something. I'm like, okay, well, sure enough, within just a minute, three deer were about 300 yards away from us and they came out of a thicket I didn't see him. The horse did. And you also say in your book that horses have blind spots, like sure. directly in front and directly Absolutely. behind. Yeah. Um, well, actually, they don't have much. They have a 350-degree um, panoramic view. I mean, they have monocular and binocular vision. Their eyes are more to the side of the head. But if they see something, they will lift their head and turn. And that way, it can come into focus. But... Um, for humans, I mean, you can check your peripheral vision. If I put my thumb out here and look at you, I can see my thumb right now. So that's the extent of my peripheral vision. Horses are almost the entire way around, but you got that one blind spot right at the tail, and you also have just below their eyes, out about, say, six feet 
and down. So they cannot see down very well. That's why you don't want to tighten the rein too much. They have to look down. You know, if they're going down a hill or a slope, give them a little bit of rain so they can see what they're doing. So once the battle commenced and it was at the, the pitched phase of the battle, um, if you looked around, what would you, how many horses would you have seen and what would they be doing? Well, <clears throat> for the, the supply horses, many of those are going to be kept in the rear of the army uh, and, you know, brought up as supplies are needed to replace the ones that you've expended. Most of what you're going to see at Gettysburg or if you use your imagination, you're going to see the horses that are attached to the artillery. You're going to see cavalry, personal mounts of officers and couriers moving back and forth. So that is what you're going to see. You're going to see more of the military aspect of the horse's purpose at Gettysburg. And um, the artillery is a good example because, you know, if you see the movie Gettysburg, one thing they don't show, and I'm sure it was probably for safety issues, they didn't have the horses still attached to the limber. And if you're looking to, you know, you may have to leave an area and do so quickly, you don't want your animals too far from that. So they would have been in the vicinity. They would have kept them a little ways back. Sometimes they kept them right there. That way they could move at a moment's notice. Well, you were right about that with the, with the peach orchard mm -hmm. and where Sickles took mm -hmm. his troops out there and they had cannon out there and they had to get him out of there quickly. Yeah, How? it was Casper uh, Carlisle and uh, his commander, um, Captain Thompson, they had uh, one cannon, and you know to have your cannon and its ammunition and complement captured, that you know, that's not good for an artillery officer. So they were able to get one horse was you know well, the other had been severely or mortally wounded, and they were able to cut the dead horses away from the gun, and they used the power of the one horse plus himself and his officer to get that cannon back to Cemetery Ridge. And Carlisle, or Casper Carlisle was awarded the Medal of Honor for his bravery that day. So, and then you also have the uh, Ninth Massachusetts. You know, they used uh, retreat by prolong initially, which you basically have the cannon facing the enemy and you basically tether it, the tail or trail of the gun to the limber, which is the cart that pulls and holds all the ammunition. And as the gun fires, those horses will start off at a walk or a slow trot and move the gun and it allows you to fire it as you go. Well, that's one of the reasons they targeted horses back then. If you want to capture a cannon, you shoot the animal that's capable of carrying it. I know it sounds cruel, but men on both sides were guilty of doing that. Um, you can have an entire complement of a battery. It's very hard to move a 1,500, 2,000-pound cannon with just a handful of men. You need horses. So if you shoot these horses or severely limit their numbers, you're probably going to walk away with a prize. And they did end up capturing some of the 9th Massachusetts artillery pieces. They went into Gettysburg with 88 animals and they leave with eight. So the attrition rate was extremely high. And that was their first time in combat during the war.
So overall, how many horses died at Gettysburg? The estimates that you read most, uh, at the very minimum, you're looking at about 3,000. Uh, the number uh, is also goes up to as high as 5,000. So when you look at the overall number, I am not sure if they're including in that, you know, if that's just the battlefield proper or if that's including animals that were lost in route and at also um, in retreat. Uh, the 17th Pennsylvania had a um, receipt for around 1,600 horses, and this spans from October of 1862 to October of 1863. And this would have been inclusive of the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, it didn't break it down specifically as which horse died where, but by the end of that term, that one-year term, out of the 1,680 horses that they had, they only had 425 left. So they lost almost 75%. Mm. So, you know, you look at that and, you know, many of these horses were literally told, they told the riders, you ride them until they can't go any further, which means you may have to ride them literally to death. Now, when, when you usually <clears throat> think about horses in Gettysburg, you think cavalry. Mm -hmm. um, so we haven't talked really about cavalry. And were the, were the cavalry thought to be the elite? Well, <laughs> I'm sure uh, they thought they were the elite. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that, you know, uh, in a way that was. It was kind of glamorous. But when you look at uh, cavalry riding, you know, 14, 15 hours a day, that doesn't sound very glamorous. I've been on horses for, you know, five, six hours at a time. And... You, you get really stiff and sore. I couldn't imagine doing that, you know, day after day, you know, riding for, you know, countless miles. Now, the cavalry action at Gettysburg, I mean, obviously, John Buford and his Union cavalry are the ones that arrived into Gettysburg on the 30th of June, and that's when they see Confederates approaching the town of Gettysburg. And it was Buford that said, look, I'm going to be outnumbered here in the morning. There's going to be a lot of Confederates going to be enclosing on this city. And they were going, it wasn't necessarily the terrain that they were after, that road network, all those roads that stick out of Gettysburg like spokes on a wheel. That's what they wanted. They wanted the access point to bring Lee's army together. So what is Buford going to do? He's going to protect the north and western area of the town of Gettysburg, where many of these roads that the Confederates have the option to use will be back the next day, and he has promised help. So his men, his troopers, now aren't going to fight a uh, mounted battle, so to speak. They fight dismounted, and what they have to do now is they have to sacrifice one out of every four men to hold the horses of the other three. So now Buford's uh, numbers are cut by 25%. But those horses will be there when they need to hop on them. If you just let them go and start shooting, the horses are the smart ones. They turn around and run the other way. So when it comes to cavalry, everybody thinks of the cavalry charge. Well, there's no cavalry charge other than them moving back from ridge to ridge you're gonna see the cavalry charge mainly on July the 3rd out in East Cavalry Field and also on the southern portion of the field um, with Ellen Farnsworth. Those are the ones that are, you know, most people would think of. And the one on the southern end of the field, 
you wonder why they would do it in the first place because the ground is just absolutely strewn with rocks. How they even made it as far as they did is beyond me, which you know gives uh, a lot of credit to their horse riding skills. Well, when you think about Gettysburg, you always think about visiting it. You always think about Culp's Hill and Cemetery Ridge and all, all those. But there's also the separate from those is the, the two cavalry fields. So what happened there and what do you what makes it worthwhile visiting? Well, <clears throat> a lot of people do like going to East Cavalry Field and some people, you know, they, they don't want to or whatever. It's, uh, I usually leave it up to them. If they want to go, I'm more than happy to take them out. And I always tell them the East Cavalry Field is not as big as what you think it's going to be. I mean, it was fought on a fairly decent sized scale, but compared to the rest of the battlefield, it's only a small portion. But the importance of the, the uh, cavalry action at Gettysburg was partly aware it took place. You have the low Dutch and Hanover roads, and not far from those is the Baltimore Pike. So the Union Cavalry are now out there trying to keep those roads secure. The Baltimore Pike, if it's captured by Confederates, that's not going to bode well for me. That's your, that's your lifeline to retreat, supplies, messages, that kind of thing. So that is one of the reasons that the Union soldiers are out there. Jeb Stewart happens to go out there, sets up his artillery, and this is uh, to why he did this. They say he did, but why he did it, we don't know. He fires off four shots, supposedly letting Lee know he's in position, which is kind of crazy because it's such a great distance from where Lee would have been located. And then the actual fight at East Cavalry Field begins as a skirmish, and it was largely dismounted. And as it evolved over time, then you have mounted charges, and that's where you see Custer and Hampton charging, and then William Miller of the 3rd Pennsylvania coming in. And that's what, you know, people are there. To, they said when the columns hit each other, it sounded like timber, trees falling. That's how loud it was. And again, on the south end of the field, you have Alan Farnsworth. He is going to try to make an attack you know, along with uh, Wesley Merritt, uh, the last of uh, Buford's brigades, to try to hit the Confederate flank and possibly move that. But they end up running into infantry, Confederate infantry of Law's uh, uh, brigade, and also some men from Texas are out there, and they're going to put a stop to any advance by the Union soldiers. And also, uh, Merritt, you know, they're gonna be hitting men from Georgia. So, you know, you're going across this bad field, some of it's more open than others, and it, you know, they make some gains, but it, they're short-lived, they're not maintained. Now, if you watch the battle, how many horses would you see going back and forth just carrying messages? Oh, wow. You know, I honestly, I. I would think it would be hundreds of them, you know, from both sides combined. Um, you got to look that, you know, the, sometimes they have like a, an entire company of cavalry, to, uh, you know, that's going to accompany a general as an escort. So a lot of those are sending off messages to and from wherever they're going. And while the fighting is going on, you're going to have to send messages, you know, if you need reinforcements, if you need to fall back. Those are the kind of things that you you know, are gonna to have to relay, and the quickest way to do that is on the back of a horse. Now, putting this book together, you had a challenge of 
of telling the story of horses, mm -hmm. but you also had to fill people in on the, like, boil the entire battle down to. Yes. Um, the target audience, when I talked to Kevin Drake and we decided to move forward with this, I said, you know, I don't want to write another book about Gettysburg and just rehash the same storyline. I said, I want to do it from the horse's perspective. And he said, that's great. He goes, do it like you got a GoPro, either on the horse, yourself, or on the ground, so you can see and understand the action that's going on. And then he goes, we have to look at who we're writing for. And I says, yeah, I know. I said, there's a lot of people out there that know a great deal about Gettysburg, but don't know much about horses. And then you have the opposite extreme. You have people that know a great deal about horses that may not know anything about the Battle of Gettysburg. And then you got the people that are just kind of in the middle a little bit, maybe just curious because, you know, they see the book and maybe like the cover or whatnot, or they like the topic. So, you know, it's hitting three target groups. And I had to do it in such a way that I didn't go into... Um, too much detail to lose one base to satisfy the other. Is this I your first book? It is. It is. It's my first book, and everybody says, are you going to write another book? And I'm like, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I would have to feel passionate about it and want to do something that appeals to me and I think would appeal to other people. That's why I did proceed and write this book because I don't know to my knowledge if there's been anything like this that's been done. And hopefully people will enjoy it. Now we can't finish this conversation without talking about Pickett's charge. Sure. And one of the things you say on here is General Lee issued orders that officers were to make the assault while dismounted to mm -hmm. avoid unnecessary exposure to enemy fire. How'd that work out? Not well. Um, many of the officers disregarded that. Now, how many? Well, we don't know exactly for sure, but if you take um, like uh, Richard Garnett, Rode, James Kemper, wrote, if you take uh, Johnston Pettigrew, Isaac Trimble, and then you add in their staff members and their horses, plus other officers like uh, Epa Hutton of the 8th Virginia, he walked, or I'm sorry, he rode, and these, you know, these add up. So I, there is probably a lot more than you think. Um, I think they, uh, one site I, uh, or one source that I cited, it was at least 20, if not more. Why were they right in spite of what Lee said? Um, well, some of them, to be seen, inspiring presence. I think a lot of it had to do with chivalry, bravery. Um, you know, you wouldn't have to tell me twice not to ride a horse up there because you stand out. I mean, you're going to be targeted, definitely, and just about all of them were hit. And, uh, you know, there's the story about Epa Hutton, how he was shot through the leg in the same round, entered the horse. And they turned the animal to take him back to the rear to get medical attention, but he had to dismount and they had to put the horse down because it was in so much pain and so much misery. And even Isaac Trimble, you know, he mentions his horse by name. He got up to the Emmitsburg Road area, the horse was hit, ended up dying, and he said, poor Jenny, the, the horse's name was Jenny, he goes, I hate to part with you. 
I mean, this is the type of relationship that these men had with their animals, and it shows that some of them probably had them for, you know, longer periods of time than what you think. Were there some, I don't quite know how to ask this, were there some situations or some people who thought that in certain circumstances the, the, the men were more expendable than the horses? Well, that, that is a good question. Um, the, I think what maybe it'd be better to say is the men knew they were expendable. A horse is taught to trust and obey the rider, his master. So, you know, obviously horses, they might be able to sense the danger, but so far as the thought process, you know riding up to Cemetery Ridge on the back of the horse is probably not going to end up well for you, especially once you get into rifle range. And you have other troops that were expendable, you know, like the first Minnesota. Luckily for those men, they put their horses to the rear and they charged on foot and a good chunk of those men never returned. They know what's going to happen. The horse, I guess ignorance is bliss to a degree, does not, but it can sense danger, just like if a predator was around. But in a situation like the Peach Orchard where you, you've got to get that cannon out mm -hmm. of there, you have to have a horse for that. It helps, definitely. <laughs> you can't, no number of men can make up for the loss well, of Well, I mean, they, they could, uh, you could, wheel the, but you're going to need at least a small complement of horses and some men or a full complement of horses uh, to move one gun and it's limber. Uh, if not, you know, you're going to have a more difficult time and you've got to look at the lay of the land, the terrain, you know, uphills, little swales and dips. I mean, those things are going to slow you down as well. So, yeah, you would better off have a horse. Now, luckily, you know, Casper Carlisle did have you know, one good horse, and then one that was going to uh, expire from its wounds, plus his commanding officer that was able to help push that gun to, to safety. Was you think Lee's strategy at Gettysburg was generally sound? Well, <clears throat> I always tell people never look at this battle from the eyes of the present, because I, I read in one book, uh, a fellow's name was Gambone, and he even said, he goes, I'm sure if Robert E. Lee could go back 158 years, even he would probably do some things differently. I think that in Lee's mind, that these attacks that he made were sound, that they would work. But as it turned out, it did not. And a lot of people ask, why did he make the charge on July 3rd? Well, you got to look at it from a logistics standpoint, too. If you leave Gettysburg after two days of combat, what have you gained? Nothing. You've lost the lives of your men, horses, expense supplies, ammunition. But if you stick around, well, you can't just sit idle in enemy territory. That's not a good idea to do anyway. You could be surrounded. You could be attacked. I mean, that might have made Longstreet happy from, you know, the defensive fighter position that everybody says he was. But in the long run, you know, Lee's army had suffered heavy casualties. And by the time they leave, I believe there were up to about 28 percent 
of the 70 to 75,000 men that they came into Pennsylvania with were now either killed, wounded, missing, or captured. Did they have to leave many horses behind? Well, <clears throat> they took the horses with them. Um, his wagon train of wounded, 17 miles long. That's an impressive, you know, distance. Uh, if the horses that were being taken back to Virginia collapsed on the side of the road from exhaustion, well, that's where they stayed. They didn't even waste time to bury them. Uh, there was a, one story, and I, I was going to put it in the book, but I couldn't verify the source, where he, uh, Lee's army had passed through and some of the townspeople came and cut the uh, ropes that were holding the horses he captured so the horses were able to escape. Um, but yeah, they, they would have taken as much with them as possible. I mean, it kind of def would have defeated the whole purpose. One of the reasons he came up to the north was to get food supply, horses, other animals like cows, hogs, that stuff. And I, I don't want to be crass here, but in the cleanup, how do you clean up a dead horse? I mean, there, it's easier to move a, a human body than right. a horse. Well, when you look at the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg, I mean, you have, and the numbers will vary, uh, we'll say between 7,900 and 8,000 men dead on the field. And many of these poor fellows have been laying out in the hot July sun and then almost two days of torrential rain. The stench was overwhelming. So, and then they have wounded to take care of on top of this. So you gotta get the men buried and you gotta take care of the wounded. So the horses, I'm sure some of them were buried, but there's also um, uh, incidences where they put torch oil on them and set them ablaze, which just added to the, the stench in the air. And I do believe uh, toward the latter uh, portion of the retreat and aftermath, there is uh, what we call the Elliott map, and that will show in two areas on, uh, near, near uh, General Meade's headquarters, the Leicester home, and also the Trolsel farm, how many horses were buried in those areas. And just to give you an idea that it's a lot more than what most people think. Now, uh, common knowledge, I guess, used to be that with a statue of a, a soldier mounted, if they're, the horse had one leg up or both legs up, or yeah. it meant something? So, well, the, the, it's a myth, number one. It, it's, it happens to be a coincidence, but it, it, it is a myth. Um, the goes, if the horse has all feet or all, all of its hooves planted, the rider survived without any injury. If he had one leg up, the rider was wounded. Two legs up, and the rider was killed. Well, early on, I believe it was around 1915, they asked Henry Kirk Bush Brown, who was the sculptor of many of these statues, is this what it meant? Because this rumor had been, you know, back in the early 1900s was already going around. And he said, no. He goes, that's just the way it was. And he said Reynolds was a man in action and that's how he wanted to portray him on his horse. So you can imagine to the shock and horror of many people when they unveiled the Longstreet equestrian statue 
And not only does he have one foot up, the back foot is turned, so you can see he has one and a half up. Longstreet survived the battle, and he was not injured. And people were, you know, saying, oh, my God, you ruined it. No, it's a myth. If you look at the um, statue of Winfield Scott Hancock up on East Cemetery Hill, it looks and it probably was modeled after the statue of Marcus Aurelius in Italy. Same position of the hoof, the horse, and it's just like, well, there you go. It's just <laughs> showing a horse in motion. Hancock was much, very much an active commander at Gettysburg as well as Longstreet. So I think that they portray him right, and, and Reynolds. And you mentioned in your book that if you go to Gettysburg today, you can take battlefield tours on horseback? Mm -hmm. Yes. So there's two things you can do. And for the people out there that do not own horses um, and never have ridden, you can go to one of the tour companies. Now, there are three of them in Gettysburg, and I'm going to list them in alphabetical order, so mm -hmm. there's no favoritism. You have Confederate Trails, which also has the Victorian carriage. They do carriage rides. Hickory Hollow, and also the National Riding Stables Horse Rescue. So you can contact them, you know, uh, when you're getting ready to plan your trip. And I, I tell people, do it sooner than later, because if you wait till like the day before, they're probably going to be sold out. And, you know, you're not gonna end up getting your horseback ride. Do you have to so, know how to ride a horse to do this? No. No, mo probably 85 to 90 percent of the people that go on these horse tours and uh, they're with a guide. They have a guide who will go and they either talk into a little uh, microphone with an earpiece for everybody or they do what it's called a point to point. So you get the ride and the guide comes out and talks a little bit, rides some more, talk a little bit. Um, you do not have to have any riding experience. Now, they all have terms rates and restrictions. So I always tell people, find the one that interests you the most. You can go there to their website and you can, you know, talk to the people that work there about, you know, any concerns and, uh, you know, go ahead and book your tour. We are out of time, unfortunately. We've been speaking to Chris Bagley. He is the author of this book, The Horse at Gettysburg, Prepared for the Day of Battle. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.